radio voice warmed up? <clears throat> so Do you ever sing? I'm a terrible singer. Mm. Do you want to practice? Practice makes perfect and sometimes practice just makes okay. <laughs> um yeah what what should i sing Sing um well i don't know what songs do you know? Joy to the world. joy to the world That's going to get stuck <laughs> in my head. here he is Hey, there he is. <laughs> hey marcus Marcus. hey how are you doing good morning um good morning good morning i'm doing all right how are you great very good Happy to see you. yeah Happy to be here. cool that's a good start <laughs> welcome to awakening lands part of feeling where the energy is in the regenerative movement studios we are obviously in a time of poly crises we really need a shift in how people live and think and view the world and we're finding that there's really key people who are able to see like the potential for how we could live and how we could kind of base our our livelihoods in ecology and in local systems and we think that you are a really good example of that with the many hats that you've worn how you weave in between organizations and you do a lot of educating with the public it's people like you that are really critical if we are ever to make that paradigm shift to kind of help lead the way and help others see things differently I'm honored that uh, you would put me amongst uh, those you would view in that light. Um, and I will take that responsibility, uh, you know, not lightly. And yeah, um, you know, my goal is just to really hope that people can connect to and see their place in, you know, the landscape, the fabric of uh, our communities, our world. Yeah, I am inspired by the uplifting that you are. doing of uh, voices that are in this and hopefully we can build at this, you know, what is a large, very daunting task and uh, mission. But if there's ever one that was important to come together and tackle, uh, the one that is keeping us all alive seems uh, like it'd be pretty important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well said. In our interviews, we always share what we're grateful for. We think it's really grounding and gives a picture of, of you as a person, but also just to bring us to that space of being, being highly grateful for where we are and present in the moment. What I am most thankful for or grateful for today is to wake up to a nice, beautiful blanket of snow outside. I am someone who loves winter and snows. There's something about waking up to a nice, beautiful blanket of snow, kind of giving that extra brightness to the region and thinking about things like climate change and our Great Lakes not having ice. But then suddenly you get to wake up and it's like, oh, wait, today... It's a nice, beautiful snow day, so we're going to go with it and we're going to roll with it. So I'm very grateful that we have a little bit more of our ecosystem being in sync today and our water cycle functioning as it, uh, it should be. So yeah, very grateful for our snow today. In this episode, we'll explore a bit of Marcus's background to see just how a kid from a suburban setting in Buffalo is becoming one of the inspiring ecological leaders and connectors of the region. He's shouting from the hilltops, or maybe I should say the tops of waterfalls, about the important local storylines to know. He's doing so to inspire, but also to give a glimpse of what it would take for the culture of Buffalo Niagara to become truly regenerative. 
Being an ecologist, Marcus knows the role the region plays in connecting the world with bird migrations from all over the planet and terrestrial animal migrations that connect the Great Lakes region to the entire East Coast. And get ready to be excited about wildways. Then, speaking of awakening lands, at the end we touch on different ways that the story of regeneration throughout the region might come more to life for all to see. Before we jump into Marcus's background, the origin of his connection, his curiosity, his fiery passion and caring for life, let's start things off with a little glimpse of the history of environmental action in Buffalo and beyond. It is from this particular historical context that the force of nature that is Marcus can better be seen. You see, you know, Western New York inspiring uh, the environmental movement uh, on this continent from, you know, from the dawn of time where we have the Haudenosaunee in our region giving us that seven generation principle, really, you know, establishing sustainability before it becomes a buzzword. It is just the way that you go about living every day. Perhaps there's something about this place and its people that results in that principle continually coming back up. For thinkers like Olmsted to say that we really need to protect these areas. And as they saw what was happening at Niagara Falls, they used that as an inspiration to say, well, we need a national park system to protect natural areas so that what happens here doesn't happen there. Niagara Falls State Park was the first state park in the U.S., but before the state park was established back in the 1800s, Niagara Falls was incredibly over-industrialized, with every bit of the gorge covered in mills, plants, and factories. Thankfully, Olmsted and locals recognized the beauty and wonder of this place and fought for its natural preservation. This all had influence on the foundation of our first national park at Yellowstone and the overall innovation of land preservation and protection in mainstream American and European culture. You're showing how important it is for individual communities to come together and fight to protect their communities at Love Canal. Love Canal is an early example of collective action leading to big policy changes in the environmental movement. When it became clear that the high rates of birth defects, miscarriages, cancer, and other long-term diseases in a working-class neighborhood in Niagara Falls was stemming from the nearby abandoned canal project turned toxic waste dump. A group of housewives banded together to demand action from the government. They eventually got the situation declared as a state of emergency and their neighborhood relocated. This resulted in the creation of super funds. And Western New York was part of another hugely influential event in 1968. The Buffalo River catching on fire, inspiring the Environmental Protection Agency. You know. Hopefully now you're getting some sense of just how important this place has been at influencing the environmental movement. It's endured a lot. And it's from this fuller sense of context that we can now learn about Marcus. I heard in an, in an interview yesterday that you always wanted to be outside. Was it just some call to the wild in some sense or, or or what was it was there a particular landscape that you fell in love with it was kind of like a call to the wild ever since i was younger but my sense of place growing up it was the wilds of chictawaga uh new york so i am born and raised in buffalo i fell in love at an early age just exploring roaming rambling what were my wilds at the time i would take any chance that i get to just be immersed in the bushes, the creeks that would go by, catching frogs, and just spending as much time outdoors as possible. It's interesting now, because you look back and you're like, wow, what seemed like 
uh, the wild back then. And what, what I know now was the abandoned rail line that is in the shadow of the Buffalo International Airport, those, you know, woods and creeks that I was in were, uh, you know, thickets of buckthorn invasive species and, you know, not weed. And, but when you're a kid, it doesn't matter. It's just as magical. Marcus shared with us something else pretty magical. Uh, the event, the moment that led to him becoming a naturalist. It was when he met one and went on their guided tour through the forest at Allegheny State Park. In some sense, that walk was like an introduction to the world around him. We took one vacation a year as a family, and that one place that we went was Allegheny State Park. For those who don't know, it's about an hour and a half south of Buffalo, right on the New York-Pennsylvania line. And Allegheny State Park is a little core of undeveloped paradise. I would spend a lot of time exploring. I never really had anybody take me into the woods or explain to me the names of plants and animals and things that are around me. It was more just, you know, a recreational trip. But one trip in the woods with a naturalist from, uh, from Allegheny State Park completely changed uh, my view of mm. the natural world. I had somebody take me off trail and, and we went. Hold on one second. His phone's ringing. <laughs> no worries. I had somebody. <laughs> We're going off trail. Phone. Come on. <laughs> and now I have my digital assistant to come with me. Back to the woods. On that first walk that I finally had someone take me off trail and we will go through the woods and suddenly she was able to point to different plants, trees, animals and give them a name for the first time i started to see the forest for the individual trees all of these plants suddenly had names and she was pointing to a plant and said you know you can even eat this plant and being a kid having their eyes open for the first time like all right what do you mean you can take me into the woods point to a green plant growing in the dirt and i can eat it i started i had to take her up on that challenge and say all right i'll eat it and she gave the caveat but if you eat this no one will talk to you for the rest of the walk so be forewarned that's when i had my very first wild onion and my mind was blown to be able to have an edible plant come out of the woods you can walk through the woods you can know the names of the plants animals that are around you you can take other people into the woods and make that connection a walk through the forest is like walking through an art gallery with nine-tenths of the paintings turned to the wall. And that you can walk through there, but you have no connection to the wonder, the majesty that's around you. And it's when those connections are made, those paintings are turned around, you're able to get names and build those heartfelt connections. Once you have that connection to your sense of place, you're motivated to want to change it. And then suddenly, wait a minute, now we have many people on board to build at and tackle like large environmental challenges that we have every day. So that's kind of what uh, inspired me to get into the environmental world to not only want to be outside as much as possible, but then also uh, help protect those places where I built that connection and connect more people to it so that we can have more wild spaces, more people caring about wild spaces, and in turn, a uh, healthier and more productive ecosystem. Marcus, you're firing me up, man. Yeah. <laughs> in Western New York, we also have some really big Rust Belt cities um, all across the Great Lakes. And when you're talking about your childhood, you're talking about living in suburbia, very close to a city. And 
I know that a lot of your work has been focusing on accessibility. Just because you live in a city does not mean that you can't make those connections to your place. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about like the importance of ecological education and accessibility, enjoying nature for marginalized and underserved groups, but also just yeah, in urban settings as well. Um, could you kind of share a little bit about that? I grew up in a small apartment with a single mother, so we really uh, did not have much. So the outdoors was where I got to go and explore and spend as much time as possible. And it was the place where it didn't matter where you came from or how much that you had, because when you're outdoors, we are all just as equal to each other. We need to have ecological accessibility and these natural places where people can make these connections they are just fundamental to who we are as humans, as a species, for refuge, to be able to go, to be restored, to be inspired. But also as a place to remember that that is where our drinking water comes from. That is what our wildlife is feeding off of that then in turn feed us. This is where our farms that are supporting us get their water from. My favorite quote that I use to help guide my work uh, is from Baba Diyum, who is a Sangalese forester. He said that in the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand. And we will understand only what we are taught. So that is why I view environmental education as a key to solving a lot of our environmental problems are issues that we have in creating and regenerating our ecosystem because you can't expect somebody to want to protect the Great Lakes if they don't have a connection to it, if they can't see that connection that they have to it. Yeah. And, you know, with all of your experience uh, in, in ecological uh, education, in being somebody who provides accessibility, I'm wondering, is there any particular inspiring story that you carry with you of providing accessibility to someone who didn't have it and seeing their worldview change? Being able to take students out, you know, before our walk, they told me, Mr. Brownbird, we have Redbird, we have Blackbird. That's, <laughs> that's what we have for birds, which is great in that, you know, you at least see that variety, but to be able to take the students 10 steps behind a high school and see 13 different species of birds, give them names and show them that, you know, right here in this stream that goes right past your school, past your house, you have birds that are connecting to the Arctic, to the Neotropics, uh, and just seeing their eyes open up and say, well, wow, we have all that, you know, right here. When you walk with your blinders on from home to school and back and forth, you don't necessarily see that, oh, that creek is suddenly part of, you know, the largest freshwater ecosystem on the planet. And Marcus offers these sorts of moments of inspiration, deepenings of understanding, connections to nature on a regular basis. That's what he does. One place he does so annually is the Birds on Niagara Festival, which happens next month, actually, in February. It's a place where people come together to celebrate the wonder of birds coming from all over the planet to Niagara's icy waters. I think one thing that's really amazing about something like Birds on the Niagara is that it's, it's a winter birding festival. And it's a festival. It's celebration. It's really bringing to get people together to celebrate and 
um, kind of adapt their culture around this idea of being a bioregion and being connected with a lot of things um, and celebrating that. I love the Birds on the Niagara Festival for being just that, of getting back to celebrating these natural phenomenon that we used to really kind of build our entire phenological calendar around. And it's kind of getting back to that sense of wonder that we have. It seems almost like a paradox of what do you mean? You want me to go to the base of Niagara Falls in bitter February and have ice build up on my hair and eyelashes. Um, but that is the place to be because we have birds coming in from the Arctic, from you know Europe coming over. And it's that sense of wonder that you don't get unless you are there. And once you're there, you're getting hooked. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you haven't been hooked yet. And I had to ask Marcus, how in the world these birds are so tough in the cold? Yeah, I mean, they have a different biology that us, so it is like, yeah, impossible for a human to, you know, think in the mind of a goose waking up on a frozen lake. And how haven't your feet froze off and turned into <laughs> blocks of ice? You know, that bird biology allows them to have their countercurrent circulatory system that, you know, allow their core to maintain temperature and not lose it to the outside. And, you know, you think about a bird and when you see it, you're really only seeing the illusion of that bird. You're seeing all of those feathers that are covering it and really concealing how small that bird actually is. So when you see that duck sitting on that ice, they have those layers of guard feathers, flight feathers, those insula insulating feathers. So they have their big old jackets on when they're hunkered on that ice and, you know, they're circulatory system allow them to preserve their heat and that's part of why I love the festival because it instills that wonder of how is that snowy owl just out there bobbing on the ice all day long and having the wind ice and snow uh, at its back the all day long but how they're able to do it I think helps build that wonder and say all right well, that gives that kid that inspiration to answer that question of our, how did that duck wake up on that lake and not freeze? And suddenly you now have a budding ornithologist, you have a budding ecologist and biologist. So um, these festivals and the sense of wonder, I think are um, what uh, help inspire that environmental conservation. We then asked Marcus the role that something like Birds on Niagara plays in helping us all to understand what's happening to the planet. You start to see once you got that connection, that love, then it's all right, well, where are we with, you know, the birds on the Niagara? And how has that changed over the course of history, over the course of millennia, over the course of the last couple of decades, or even the last couple of years? And how can we use this festival to inspire that next step of, well, we have these birds here, or we used to have these birds here. What is the next step to keep them here or to keep this ecology functioning? Um, that's a really good question. So a large part of the festival is that, that conservation action and where are the conservation needs for these birds for our corridor and how can we come together uh, to address them? Right now, it's uh, almost, uh, it's a little bit shocking that we don't have as many of the birds 
in Western New York, as typically are in our region for the festival. And, you know, why is that? Why uh, haven't they made their way down? The Birds on Niagara is helping more people to see and understand these continental scale connections, to see shifting scenarios and increasing threat to some of the most lovable and majestic species we know. But as hard as these realities are to look at, they're exactly what we need to see. We need to see what's happening. We need to understand more about the planet. We need to learn to see the whole. Being uh, a place where these connections are so apparent, a place where people can come to get those tangible connections to the poles, the North and South Pole, to other continents. I have a sense of pride and how you know, festivals like Birds at Niagara show it, um, and how we have a mission ahead of us now to connect to not only those flyways that birds are able to migrate through and make those connections to, but what about those terrestrial connections that we have and we are a link to here in Western New York? We have the Appalachian Mountains coming up all the way from the south. And here in Buffalo, those animals, those wildlife, those plants that are moving along those Appalachians, they have their connection to the Great Lakes, to the Adirondacks, to the Finger Lakes, the Boreal Forest. What I'm excited to be working on is how can we build those wild ways? Put yourself into the paws of an American black bear. And go back 500 years before there was European colonization on Turtle Island and imagine that you are a black bear living in what is now known as Western New York and you're going about your daily life. You could have a range that could stretch tens to uh, dozens of miles, up to 70 miles you could roam and ramble. And back then, you could do that unencumbered all of these other creatures could migrate and move through our landscape unencumbered and freely. Fast forward to today, imagine that you are a black bear in the heart of Allegheny State Park and you wanted to travel up to Lake Ontario. Imagine how treacherous that journey would be today. The highways, the human developments, the communities, and how fragmented our ecosystem looks like in Western New York, but really across the United States. How can we think to protect more than just individual pockets of land, but really work on that landscape scale, knowing that when you protect one little parcel of land, the wildlife that live there, they aren't just interacting with that parcel. They are moving through that parcel, migrating through. They are going to find food on the outside of it. So protecting individual parcels of land is not enough to regenerate a landscape, to reconnect an ecosystem. So what we are doing is we are building on the Eastern Wildway concept put forth by the Wildlands Network, which is a nonprofit organization that mapped out the entire East Coast and said, if we were to protect half of the East Coast for wildlife protection, wildlife habitat protection, left the other half to human development, human cities, communities. Where could we do that strategically and build upon already protected and intact areas 
and then also build corridors, linkages, or connections from those big core areas to each other to allow that wildlife to move, migrate as they once did, and to also migrate to adapt to climate change because our climate is changing and animals, wildlife are only going to have three options in order to deal with that change. You can either move, you can adapt, or you can die. Dying isn't an option any animal wants to pick. Adapting is great, but at the rate that humans have sped up climate change, adapting just simply is not an option anymore. So the only option left is to move. So in order to help our wildlife out, we are gonna to have to give them the space, the connections to be able to move in order to respond to climate change. So when the Wildlands Network put out that map of the Eastern Wildway, we here in Western New York at the Western New York Land Conservancy, we saw that, wait a minute, we here in Western New York have core habitat. And not only that, but we are the core habitat and the Eastern Wildways linkage to the Great Lakes ecosystem and beyond. So not only are, do we have a mission to help make that Eastern Wildway a reality, but we have the crucial mission to be that connection, that linkage from the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes and beyond. In a long-winded nutshell, that is what the Eastern Wildway is. It is a landscape-scale conservation program where we are figuring out what are our critical areas to protect and how can we connect them to each other. That's so exciting. Markison gave us some sense of what's currently happening in Western New York to support the Eastern Wildway. We are really the first region out of that Eastern Wildway vision that is kind of making this a reality on the ground. So uh, we take pride at the Land Conservancy as working with our partners at the Wildlands Network as kind of spearheading and piloting of, all right, how can a land trust take this kind of larger mission and actually make it a reality on the ground. So the establishment of the Wildway is something that I take a lot of pride in. Having a ecological program that is staffed with a director to kind of oversee this. And this mission is not just the Land Conservancy alone. What we are doing is building a network. And that is our biggest kind of mission this year is the power of partnerships. Our Wildway, um, Project area has identified over a million acres of critical habitat to conserve. So there's no way that I'm doing that alone, Land Conservancy is doing that alone. So we are bringing in all of our partners uh, from organizations, municipalities, agencies, nations, uh, our tribal partners, and trying to figure out how we can all coalesce around this Wildway vision to give us another one of those lenses to look through to help build that landscape connection. And one thing that I think that is really interesting is you're not only with the wild way, you're not, you're not only looking at like um, state parks, federal parks and things like that. You're also connecting with private landowners and inviting them into this. I'm wondering how it is, how that's going, how you're pitching the story, how you're kind of getting um, like, like I said, the community on board with joining this, what does that look like? Yes, a huge opportunity for the Western New York Wildway is to be able to work 
with private landowners. Since we are a nonprofit organization at the Western New York Land Conservancy, we are not a government. We are not a municipality. We are just a organized group of individuals that are really excited about land conservation and land preservation. So we are able to work with private landowners that are just as excited about this as we are. And they have been many landowners that see the Wildway map and suddenly they light up because they knew that their little corner of the earth was important in the general fabric of the ecosystem. And now we are kind of giving them that proof of, all right, where I am living and stewarding is important because it falls into this overall plan of a wild way. And wait a minute, now what can I do to make it so that wildlife can move through my property uh, better or easier or have more habitat um, has been a really inspiring kind of tool to really um, engage with private landowners and um, to bring more of them on board. And then giving them the tools to permanently protect from development so that it stays a vital part of the fabric of our ecosystem. Inspired by seeing a story of landscape scale regeneration that people could get behind. I then wondered if there were more stories of local regeneration that were widely shared. So what's your sense of storytelling around the regenerative movement locally? That's a good question. Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> it's because it, I guess in my, in my mind in Western New York, I, I don't necessarily, yeah, see necessarily one regenerative movement. I see a lot of individual uh, kind of movements. We are uh, we're a place of many communities, organizations, kind of networks that don't necessarily have one big coalescence. We have many different coalitions. Uh, so the storytelling for each one uh, is a little bit different. And that is probably, you know, one of our strengths is that, you know, we have so many different organizations working on different principles of regeneration and working towards these concepts, but is it necessarily one movement? I think it does have a lot of opportunities to kind of bringing together one coalescent story, um, but there are a lot of, you know, opportunities. We have groups like the Western New York Environmental Alliance that kind of brings groups together uh, with that environmental lens. I'm building a Wildway Partner Network. We're gonna have our Wildway lens that we're building. So um, we have a lot of those individual ones, but we have a lot of work probably to bring them all together to have you know one regenerative movement. But uh, we are a movement of many movements here in Western New York. Curious about your thoughts on separate organizations that are oftentimes fighting for the same funding, the same resources. Do you see any potential for um, like groups in this area to start to become more aligned where we can kind of start focusing and interacting a bit more pro-socially and supporting each other's work? Like what, what do you kind of think about that idea? And I, I know that that's kind of like an ideal situation, but just wanted to hear your thoughts. That is kind of what I'm hope that I'm building right now with our Wildway Partner Network is building the space that has all of these different uh, points of view coming to the table. They all have their individual missions, but where are the ways that those overlap and that we can really build out and uh, move forward together and uh, really make kind of uh, those connections at the get-go so that natural collaborations happen? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and and what we've been learning um, over the last couple of years, really, in um, tracking the bioregional movement, being a part of a lot of a lot of different conversations, is that one of the things that uh, we've seen elsewhere that is holding that space at being the center for that is community art. Do you have any examples of of community art that's at that scale? Um, mm, I wonder if, yeah. if you're aware of anything. It's a great question. I mean, I think that we could always, uh, you know, use more uh, art. I, the first, the thing that came to mind uh, for me is kind of more of the storytelling side of artistry. And one of the projects that came out of our region that I'm very proud of in the last year is that we just had an episode of PBS Nature that was filmed right here on our Niagara River corridor and Niagara Falls. And the, the power that I saw come from that in terms of, you know, the art of storytelling and, uh, you know, really kind of setting the scene is how many people came up to me and talked to me about how cool it was to see the river that they just drive past every day put on the same pedestal as big cats in Africa, as, you know, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. It's what we have here was showcased and locals were able to see their home in that lens and the power that came from that and terms of changing that point of view of uh, I heard people tell stories of growing up along the Buffalo River and you know their family members telling them if they fell back in that they would you know they would die and they would not come back because of how polluted our waters are mm -hmm. but fast forward to today and now they can turn on national television and suddenly see that Niagara River being showcased for the natural wonder and beauty it is it suddenly turns into oh wait a minute that's not just that background river that comes to the forefront and, oh, wait, how can I play a role in this, be a part of this? I want to be on the river. I want to be on a boat floating on a kayak in the middle of the archipelago on the Niagara River. So um, that is the uh, what comes to mind when I think of, all right, how can we use art storytelling to change the hearts, minds, and attitudes of people who live along the Niagara River, along the Great Lakes, it's the art, it's the storytelling that kind of reawakens that or reminds you of where you are in the sense of place. And it's very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how can listeners follow you, Marcus? I encourage everyone to uh, take a look at our Western New York Wildway. Uh, an audio format doesn't do it justice, uh, <laughs> but we have our entire uh, map of our project area up at wnylc.org slash WNY Wildway. And you can take that lens of being a black bear in Western New York and just seeing how our landscape has been fragmented and then seeing what an opportunity that we have for uh, building a more connected, uh, protected landscape here in Western New York. So I definitely recommend everyone checking out uh, our Western New York Land Conservancy website, wnylc.org. Um, uh, I am on Instagram at mrostin if you are a social media follower and would like uh, to stay linked in there. Thank you so much. It's great yeah. to meet you. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Thank you all for uh, your work that you are doing to uplift all of these stories. Storytelling is just so innate in, you know, the human culture. And that's, you know, just how we got information 
from the dawn of time. And as you've recognized that that is what we're going to need going forward and seeing what everyone is up to and learning from them. So I thank you so much for helping uplift our story here in Western New York and for helping us learn from those stories from other bioregions. So uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, you got it, man. Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration, if you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello. Marcus, you're firing me up, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>